I'm super excited to be here. I'm going to just dig right in because I have lots to say um, and a short amount of time to do it. So, uh, division. Think about the word division. Think about our culture. Think about what North American culture is like in so many different facets. In so many different areas, we could say division. And there's no doubt that in some way, it's good to take a really harsh view about something or to advocate or oppose to something. Sometimes that's a very good thing. But it seems like in so many ways in our culture, there's almost a worship of this opinion of self. That it almost kind of encompasses, like overlooks the actual issues that are present as the opinion of an individual becomes more important than the actual issue that's being discussed. And I feel with that, with division that occurs, it can really creep into the church. And in different issues. I mean, there's political issues, of course. There's uh, issues that are different opinions in theology, in beliefs. Uh, we even see it with things like gun control, whether it's following the current regulations, Maybe something a little more simple, like uh, how I raise my kids in education. Do they go to homeschool? Do they go to private school? Do they go to Christian school? Do they go to public school? Um, and I think in some way we can be tempted um, to have these intense views in the local church. They can kind of creep in. When it comes to understanding what our function and what our mission actually is. So do we do certain things here at the expense of other things? So when it comes to the local church, are we valuing Christ as we're valuing his kingdom? That's the ultimate function, whether that's outward or inward. So a division that usually occurs will be something like this. Should we be more concerned with evangelism and outreach and stuff outside the church, like reaching the lost? Or... Are we really just to come in and take care of the body, build them up, discipleship, right? Which one of these is more important? And I think that every one of us may have a slight bend to one more than the other. But see, Paul in this text in Acts 20, which you can head there now because we're going to spend our whole time there. In Acts chapter 20, Paul gives this farewell address to the Ephesian elders. And it's interesting because this is the only speech recorded of Paul where he's talking exclusively to believers. And what he doesn't talk about is one of those at the expense of the other. He talks clearly about the outward focus of God's mission and the Great Commission, but he talks just as seriously about the inward concern for the church. And all this is wrapped up in valuing and treasuring Christ. So we're going to begin at verse 17, and we'll go right to the end of the chapter when, well, when I'm done. <laughs> I'm going to read the first part first. So this part is kind of, I've divided it into two sections, kind of the outbound and inbound. So let's take a look. So now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know I live among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisons and affliction awaits me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospels of the grace of truth. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify you to this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring you the whole counsel of God. So, 
a little context, okay? We've jumped ahead in in the chapters, and we've jumped to chapter 20, right? And Paul's just finished about three years of his ministry in the city of Ephesus. But tensions are arising there. There were conflicts, there were riots, and because of those things, he's left there. He went back through the region of Macedonia, strengthening the churches that he planted in each of those regions, and then he journeyed on to Greece, specifically spending three months in the city of Corinth, then traveling again back through Macedonia, down to Troas, and now he's sailing back to Jerusalem. And the reason why he's going back to Jerusalem, or why he wants to get there quickly, is because he wants to get there for the, for the Pentecost, for the time of Pentecost. And you see that just in the previous verse before I began. But we now read that as he goes past Ephesus, he stops to the south at a place called Miletus. He stops there, and what he does is he calls the elders, the leaders from Ephesus, to come and meet him. And these are the recorded words of Paul, what he shares with those elders. They're probably meeting by the ship, on the ship, I'm not sure. He calls for them, they stop, and I want to note that he stops. He stops his journey, right? Even though it said he was on a fast journey back to Jerusalem, Paul stops there which I think suggests something about the importance of these words and the importance of these people to him. This wouldn't have been a short, like, one or two hour thing. It probably would have added two to three days onto the journey. So he stops and he wants to share these important things with the elders of the church. Important things to them, but in addition, important things to us. So the first part, Paul is reminding the elders of the three years that he spent with them and what it was like for them and how he modeled leadership to them, how he lived among them, the things that he did. And then the second part, Paul's looking ahead. Now, not only looking ahead for his own life, but also reminding the elders of what they had in store for them. So why them? Why, why these individuals? Well, we need to look at who these individuals are, right? These elders. Where did it start from? Well, it started when Paul and his companions were walking into that city, a city that was dedicated to Artemis worship, so Greek gods worship. Um, and they came to Jesus. They were saved. Paul came there with his buddies and they proclaimed Jesus. And from that group, we have these individuals that were then discipled by Paul right? And the rest of his team. And they came to a point in their faith, in their life, that they met the qualifications of eldership, which we talked about in a previous message. But this is the last time that he's going to see these guys. And these individuals would have been very dear to Paul. And Paul would have been very dear to them. And in addition to that, these individuals would have done ministry with Paul. And they wouldn't have just come and observed him and watched from the seats. These were his friends. They partnered with him, right? They did life together. They cried together. They had successes together. They had hardships together. And this is the last time Paul will see them. So he wants to stop regardless of how long it's going to take. And I think it's really important what he shares, but I also think it's really important how they respond, right? It was critical for this ongoing ministry of the church, these leaders of the church, how they responded to what we we have recorded in the text would have been vital, right? Because if they led poorly, history shows us in the Bible that often people would follow suit, right? That trouble would ensue. And the story of God from the very beginning to the end, there is a strong connection between how leaders lead and then what went on with the people of God. Right from our forefathers to the prophets, to the judges, to the kings, if they led poorly again, it affected those who were under them. And so this was key to live this out and and to heed what Paul was instructing them to do. So they've called the elders. Paul's called them. The leaders of the church, they're there. He's calling them all so that he can basically send them off. He's telling them, you know what's going on, where he's going, and what to do in his absence. And so these are kind of the app. Now I want to look at some of the applications of this text. And I actually really struggled with this 
because there are so many things that you can draw and apply to life and the church. But I just kept coming back to the one verse packed right in the middle of the text. I believe it's the motivation about everything else that's occurring in the text. And so we are going to look at the outward focus of the church and see how we can apply that to our lives, as well as the inward function, as specifically as pastors, church leaders are supposed to care for the body. But I want to look first at this verse 24, okay? And I have already read it, but I believe this is the motivation on both sides. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Could you read that verse and say that of yourself? Read it again. And could you say that for yourself? I do not account my life of any value. Because this is ridiculous, especially in our culture, right? One, they would be worried about you, or two, I mean, if it doesn't take long, you just gotta look around, and it seems like the only value that's placed is on self when you look around on, you know, social media, in advertising, whatever that looks like. Maybe not even that. Maybe it's how I feel or your individual emotions or your individual desires, right? But Paul's worldview is radically different. And I want to say about Paul is he's not saying, oh, I count my life of no value and he's trying to make this modest statement of self-righteousness. That's not what he's doing here. And he's not saying, oh, I care so much about everybody else. I have no worth. That's That's not what he's saying here. It's not that at all. And do you want to know why? Because it's not about him. It's not about us. The reason he's saying, I count my life of no value, is because he's saying, I count Jesus of such value, in such treasure, like I'm nothing. I'm like what the prophet Isaiah said, talking about those little grasshoppers running all around. I'm less than dust on the scales compared to Jesus. So you know what? I really don't matter. And you can see this through a lot of his writing. I want to point out in Philippians chapter 3, which he wrote, and there's lots that you can um, grab from Paul's writing, but this one I really felt in relation to this text. But whatever gain I had... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So right before this, before he said this, Paul had like laid out his pedigree of this good, awesome Jewish man, right? He's basically saying like, if anyone's the man, I'm the man, right? In Judaism, uh, if anyone got together with him, he'd be like the Hebrews of Hebrews. Uh, He's from the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. As righteous under the law, he's blameless. But what does he say? But whatever I has gained, I count as loss. He's like, none of it matters whatever, because of the surpassing worth and value of knowing Jesus Christ. He says, I count all other things rubbish, garbage. And so it's really fun to say that in theory, but he's got some serious statements coming out of his mouth here and in his writing. I was at a garage sale the other day, and I hate garage sales. I never stop at garage sales. But I was walking my dogs, and there were people. So I felt like I was going to go in and chat. It was giving me a good reason to go and talk to them. They live in the neighborhood. Um, and I'm just telling you, it's like sensory overload to the maximum, because there's things everywhere, and they have all the COVID rules as you're walking through. So much stuff. And some was so creepy. Like I, I, I'm just not sure. But anyways, after I walked through, I couldn't figure out why I felt so sad. 
Like I actually felt sad. I just didn't feel good about being there for some reason. I couldn't figure out why. So I started to think about the Lord, and I felt like the Lord was really trying to teach me something about this internal nature and this temporal nature of this world. It was like I'm looking through the clothes and the shoes, and there's like knives and bow and arrows, and some things were like 20 or 30 years old, and people wouldn't pay 50 cents for it, right? And the Lord reminded me that my heart is where my treasure is. And all this stuff is meaningless. It's completely irrelevant to the point that nobody even wants those items anymore. And I'm talking about myself here too, right? We're so reliant on possessions, like they have some amazing value and worth, right? Whether it's shoes or cars or houses or bikes or clothing, or maybe it's just if I have this much money, I can retire. And Paul says, nothing. It's garbage in comparison to the internal nature in the value of Jesus. Nothing. And we treat our stuff like it's so precious to us, right? but it's like rotting our souls from the inside out. And Paul says to us, no, look to the value of Christ. And hear me today, I'm not trying to make you feel like condemnation. Let's just think of it as like a redirection, okay? I'm not making anyone feel bad here, right? We like nice things, but let's think of this redirection to the surpassing worth and of knowing Jesus Christ, okay? This redirection. But we struggle to understand it either way, right? I read this quote from John Piper from a book called Hunger for God. He says, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. We waste so much time. Hours at night watching television, spending hours going through our phones, spending hours internet shopping or going somewhere or whatever that looks like. And then we come to the Word, maybe once, maybe twice a week, and wonder why God's not speaking to us and why we can't hear Him. But that's not what it is. Our hearts are just so wrapped up in all this stuff that we miss him. And we're all guilty of that, myself included. We just get so wrapped up. Paul talks about the value of Christ and ultimately why I've said all of this is because Paul is talking about his treasuring Christ above all things, even his life. So I ask you, do you treasure Jesus above everything? Not theoretically, not just saying it, like do you treasure him? Because Paul does. And if we look back at the text now and we see this evidence of this marked on his life, we look to verse 19. He talks about serving the Lord with humility. As a church, as leaders, as people, we have to serve with humility always. Inside the church, outside the word church, being humble, this emptying of ourselves, putting others first. And then he continues to say with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. See, I know this is hard to hear, but trials and suffering can be good for us. It teaches us who we really are. Lets us see what our, what our faith is made of. So we know that Paul has been through a lot. We know that because we've been journeying through the book of Acts, right? And I got to this point and it's like, you can blow over this quite easily because it's like, oh yeah, I know Paul's always in hard times. He's always pain, he's always suffering. You know, he's going to jail. But I went back through the book of Acts and I chronicled every time that Paul experienced suffering just in the book of Acts or a trial or whatever. And I wanna read them to you really quickly. So the G Jews plotted his death in chapter 9, 23, he kept on preaching. 
In 929, Greek-speaking Jews sought to kill, and he went on preaching. In 1350, the Jews stirred up persecution against him and Barnabas, and he kept on preaching. 14.2, unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against Paul. 14.5, a plot was made to mistreat and to stone Paul and Barnabas, and he continued on preaching. 14.19, the Jews in Listeria stoned him, dragged him out of the city, and left him for dead. He preached in Derby the next day. In chapter 15, Paul was worn down by the debate over the circumcision at the Jerusalem Council, but he kept on preaching. 1538, Paul experienced this disheartening split with his brothers, and he went on preaching. 1618, we learned last week, Paul and Silas were thrown in prison. And what do they do? They sang hymns and kept on preaching. In 17.2, the Thessalonian Jews formed a mob to attack all the brothers in the area in response to his preaching. So he preached more in Berea. Upon reaching there, he came back, persecuted again, and then Paul went to Athens. And in 18.6, the Jews opposed and insulted him, and he goes on. And on and on and on, and then he's going to go to Jerusalem. And guess what? Stuff's going to happen in Jerusalem too. Um, so there's some things here, obviously, that are going to happen to him in Jerusalem. But I think Paul, this is me guessing, if I was Paul, must have been tired at this point. Like, really tired at this point in his life. Or discouraged, you would think. So what in the world is possessing him to keep going? To continue? And I know some of you today are probably really tired. And that could look in different ways. You could be tired in your marriage. Maybe some of you are struggling. You're having a hard time with your child or maybe to have a child. Maybe you're struggling in a, a current circumstance. Maybe it's your health. Maybe you're emotionally exhausted. Maybe you're struggling with anxiety or depression. Everyone in here has a hurt. We are so incredibly weak. We put on this like really good front to the world, right? But we're weak in this place, every single one of us. But the question is, in your tiredness, can you continue? Because Paul does. And I want to tell you today from an encouragement to value and treasure Christ above it all. He will give you strength. Although the temptation is often to rest from him instead of in him. To rest from Christ instead of in him. Or to rest from the word and not pour over his word, knowing that his word is what's going to give us strength day by day. Or often we rest from prayer instead of resting in the labor of prayer, knowing that it's through that labor of prayer that you're going to draw the power to continue from God on high. Encouraging you today in your tiredness, in your circumstance, in your brokenness, to treasure Christ is to receive power from the Holy Spirit. And continuing verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and of our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, don't shrink back. In the same way, when we treasure and value Christ, we don't stop in our tiredness, we continue. In valuing Christ, we don't shrink back due to fear of man. Because I'm gonna tell you something. You're not going to stand before the judgment seat of your coworkers. You are not going to stand before the judgment seat of your neighbors. Yet for some reason, there's opinion, their opinions and our fears are what they're going to think about us if we start talking about Jesus and start proclaiming Jesus, wraps up and puts us down. But when we value Christ, what do we do? We continue we testify, we speak of his resurrection, we speak of repentance and faith in his name. That's the focus of all of this. We do not shrink back. 
So he didn't shrink back from proclaiming the gospel, but then a little further down, he says this word shrink back again in verse 26. This time it's within the church. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So this is the tough one. He's saying, I've given you everything that I know, everything that comes under the counsel of God, I've shared with you for three years, and because of that, I'm innocent of the blood of you all. Paul is calling these elders to that same mindset. He's not just highlighting this, oh, like bragging himself up. He's saying, look guys, I'm leaving. You'll never see me again. You need to pick that up and run with it. And because of that, he did not want their blood, the people of Ephesus, or any of their blood on his hands. He did not shrink back from declaring the full gospel. Even though, which I'm sure you can relate, there would have been some temptation to do so. Why? Because some things that are part of God's whole counsel are tempting not to share. Why? Because they're hard. There's some things that people will get offended about, people will get ticked off about, people won't understand. It'll cause disagreements, get them all fired up, cause issues and all of that. So there's this temptation to shrink back and not give the whole story. Just share the easy things, right? Not the hard things. Paul said, I didn't shrink back even though there is a temptation to do so. Because God's justice and wrath isn't as easy to talk about as his love and his compassion and his grace. But it's profitable to know the whole counsel of God. But I think to fully explain, to experience this good news, we need to receive and understand the bad, okay? So let me explain in the form of an illustration that I made up, okay? So, say my car, is acting up, making some really weird noises, it doesn't sound right, uh, so I'm gonna go and I'm gonna take it to the dealership and figure out what's going on, okay? I leave it there with the mechanic who's gonna check it over and he's gonna call me back. He calls me back a few hours later and the guy said, well, I got some bad news for you, which is the worst ever from a car person, but anyways, your car has a transmission issue and it needs to be replaced. It's gonna cost you 2,000 bucks. Well, I don't have $2,000. Oh my goodness, now I'm stressing, now I'm pacing, I'm off the phone, what am I gonna do? Can we go without this car for the week? Uh, how am I gonna make extra money? I start thinking, I start freaking out. How can I get this money? I'm just getting panicked and stressed, right? But then the phone rings and he calls me back and says, I've got some good news for you. He said that it's, the car has actually been recalled and the issue that with your car is going to be taken care of by the maker of your vehicle. Now I'm like, yes, like booyah, this is so awesome. I'm fired up, I'm dancing around the room. I'm so excited. It felt like I won the lottery and I hadn't even spent any money yet, right? But can I suggest to you that my reaction in hearing this news would not have been the same reaction if I didn't hear the bad news first. Now, I get that bad news by itself is just bad news, right? Bad news is bad news. I mean, if I had to pay that $2,000, I would have been in debt. I couldn't have paid it. Bad news by itself is just debt, right? That couldn't be covered. So here is your bad news, church. Are you ready to hear your bad news? You and me are sinners. Not accidentally, not passively, defiantly. Sin is not just out there, outside these walls, it's in here. We're not just good people who sometimes sin. We're sinners who do what is natural to us and we replace God, we worship other things, which most often is actually ourselves, or 
some kind of cultural norm, right? And so to further add to the bad news I've just given you, is that God is righteous and he must deal justly. If he didn't, he wouldn't be a just God. In the same way that all of us demand justice in our justice system in the world, like think about yourself when you watch a YouTube video or a news report and you see something happen where you thought justice wasn't served. How does that feel? What do you say? What's your reaction? In the same way that we demand it in our world, in our lives, so does God demand it in the cosmos. If he didn't serve justice, he would cease to be a just God. And the penalty for all sinners is an eternity in hell. And the bad news only gets worse when we realize that the payment for our sin is more than we could ever offer. It exceeds our credit limit. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. There's been a recall on each of our lives. And the good news is that our lives will be covered by the maker, but it's the maker of the universe. Our good news is that God is not only just and righteous, but loving and compassionate, both working in harmony with one another. And God sending his son, a sacrifice, the love of his son, Jesus, Jesus who paid our debt by dying on the cross, he paid it out. He paid out what we couldn't pay. And he lived a life that we could never live. And he's offering us forgiveness to each of us to turn to him, if we would just turn to him. He doesn't force you to do this. He invites you. And when do we turn, and then when we, what we do is we take all that bad news, we take it all in, and then you receive the good news. And then you can have my same reaction and be woohoo and fired up and dance around and party like you won the lottery. Paul did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. I don't want to either. All of what I just said isn't fun to sometimes say or hear. But me, the neighborhood leaders, we love you too much to not tell you the truth. Verse 22. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. Okay, so God's got him on a mission. Holy Spirit's leading him. He's told to go to Jerusalem according to his will. No big deal. You know, I'll just probably get stoned, beaten, maybe die. But okay, sign me up. That's what Paul says. When we value Christ, life doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense from an earthly perspective. But what's going on? He's treasuring Christ. He is constrained in the spirit. And constrained can kind of feel like bad language, like bound um, to be enslaved, right, to Christ. But to be enslaved to Christ is actually the freest you'll ever be. I heard it once said like this, a fish that thinks it's all bound to the water, right? He's got a problem, so he jumps out of the water and he goes on dry land, he's flopping all around and realizes he needs to go back into the water. So he, and then after then he gets back in the water, he swims through the water and realizes that his boundary of the water is actually where he is the most free. And that's where we're the most free, is in valuing Christ. This isn't some kind of brute submission. If you think obedience to God is about doing stuff, you don't get it. It's not about doing stuff. You can't do enough. Jesus has, though. And he gives his righteousness to all those who believe. And in all these things that Paul will face, he values Christ. So if you value Christ, you value God's mission, right? He valued God's mission, declaring and proclaiming the word. 
But also, now we're going to go into verse 28, so the other half of this. When you value Christ, you don't just value the mission, but you value the local church. You value the church. So verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own self will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away your disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night nor day, to admonish everyone with tears. Everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you in the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So when we value Christ, evangelism just happens. You can't value Christ greatly, truly treasure him, and evangelism not happen. If it's not happening, there's some sort of disconnect there. You can't value Christ and not be about the mission of God, right? In the same way that you can't value, can't value Christ, you can't not value the local church. How many times do you hear things like, well, I can worship God out at the lake. I can worship God on my walk. Well, yeah, you can, and you should, but God wants us to gather together. Still gather, and then maybe scatter, right? We need each other, and we are so weak in this place. We need the encouragement of our brothers and our sisters. This is something that Christ valued. Because if you look in verse 28, it says to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This is why we don't mess around with this. The seriousness and the gravity of God's call to the church. Because he's so passionate, so passionate about the glory of his father that he gave himself up. You see this church, the big picture church, us, as believers, we only have value because Christ's blood has been shed and applied to us. And Paul really focused on a couple things in this part. He's speaking to the church leadership, and so I do want to talk about that a little bit, but there's a lot of applications that can be applied to the congregation. And see, it's this kind of dual reality of protecting the flock, caring for the church of God, but also serving the church in a way that builds it up, right? So he first talked about um, the departure, when after his departure, there will be. He didn't say not if fierce wolves come. He said, there will come. And he doesn't just say wolf, he says fierce wolf. And Paul's talking about what Jesus had talked about at Sermon on the Mount. Some will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are these fierce wolves. Now, we have a lot of really solid thinkers, Bible thinkers, and people in here, and people who are really attentive and awesome, but I think that the type of wolf that comes in this place that can be the most fierce has all the right answers. And they can look really good doing it. But somehow when you're around them, you're constantly drawing away the tension from Christ and putting it onto something else. Having all the right answers, but yet promoting a spirit of negativity within the walls of the body. Or someone who has all the right answers, but they're just really not that nice. They're kind of judgy, right? They're more talk than action. Or have all the right answers, but somehow promote this spirit of grumbling and complaining. Someone who knows all the right answers, but constantly stirring up disagreement or conflict talks about each other. And in Proverbs 6, it talks about things that God hates. And one of the things that God hates is a false witness who pours out lies and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Knowing all the right answers, but slandering your brothers and sisters bought by the same blood. 
And this so quickly happens. That's why it's so scary. It's so easy, right? And I'm constantly amazed how easily we hear these things. We hear the truths of God. They come at us and we fear like we agree. We say amen. We're all happy. And then somehow we leave this building and go out there into the world with corruptive attitudes and corruptive talk. And in Ephesians 4.29, it says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such that is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. It happens so quickly, though. It's just so easy to be deceived. So don't do it. We need to be constantly in this nature of examining ourselves. And not in an unhealthy way, but treasuring Christ, we examine ourselves. And as pastors of the church, we care for the flock, but we build them up at the same time. And sometimes there's hard truths that come with that. But we have grace to everyone. So how do we do this? Verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It's the word of God. It's the Bible. We're not moving from the Bible. We preach the Bible every single weekend here. That's why we encourage you to go in that book every single day. It's why we have groups so we can discuss this book and apply it because we believe it's the authoritative word of God and it's able to build us up. It's able to provide hope. It's able to provide an internal perspective that we need. And Jesus, when he prayed for the disciples in John 17, he said, "O oh, Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. This is how we grow. This is how we grow in holiness. It's through constantly being in the word of God. And not as like a checklist item, not a way to be a good Christian, but as a means to beholding the glory of God, as valuing him, valuing his mission, valuing his church. Then we see church leadership is to protect the flock, but also build them up. And then he says to help the weak, and then towards the end, it says, and it is more blessed to give than receive. So why does he focus on these two commandments of Christ? Well, helping the weak and giving to those instead of receiving is exactly what Jesus did. This is exactly who Jesus is. He came to us in our weakness, in our sin, dying and shedding his blood and raised up from the dead. And through that, we can have forgiveness of sin and eternal life to all those who believe. As a result, we embody Christ to others. We are here to help the weak. And I just want to make this clear though, okay? When I'm talking about helping the weak, we're all weak in so many ways, in so many different ways. But sometimes you're really weak, like in a really tight spot. You could be, like I talked about before, struggling in your marriage, in your current situation, maybe with a child, um, maybe work as a situation, maybe you have an addiction, right? Whether it's drugs, whether it's sexual immorality, whatever it looks like, there's this temptation in our pride to not want to seek help. But I want to say from us at the Neighborhood Church, don't let these things catch on fire and blow up before you seek help. If you need help, we want to help. We want to encourage you. Please come see one of, us, one of the pastors or fill out our connect card or see our counselor. We want to know that we're here. I want you to know we're here to serve you. We are here to serve you to serve you, to come alongside you in your weaknesses. We have group leaders that are willing to do this. We have elders, we have deacons, we have other members of our church family because we have all kinds of weaknesses. 
And we have so many ways that we can encourage each other and be this encouragement to the body. So I want to make that clear. As a church of God, a church body, we want to provide that and be faithful to build one another up. Always trying to outdo each other in honor. And this is the very last part. So he's no longer talking. And the worship band can come up. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. So Paul closes his speech by kneeling and praying, and they cried. Why? Because they loved each other. They were friends. They were spiritual friends. They realized that they were never going to see one another again on earth. And this was a sad reality to them. And Luke uses the word sorrowful in verse 38. And it means to experience deep pain. And ministry, the mission for God, can be painful at times. But all life-giving things are. But there's beauty in it that nothing else provides. There's this rawness and this realness, and, and it brings you to tears. Tears is mentioned like three times in this passage. Life is filled with tears, and, and there's nothing to be ashamed of. They're often a sign that something meaningful has taken place. But no matter how many tears were shed on earth, here on earth, God will one day wipe them all from our face. If we give ourselves to God and trust our lives with him and wait for him to set it all right, in between we're gonna labor and we're gonna love and we're gonna serve and we're gonna give and we'll experience what only God can do inside of us, inside of our community, inside of our church and in the world. I want you to know the word of God. I want us to protect each other. I want us to know the whole counsel of God. I want us to be bold and walk in the spirit and speak into people's lives. But you want to know what I want more than that? I want us to love Jesus so much that everything we do flows out of that. That's my prayer. So I'll ask you the same thing that I asked you from the beginning. And maybe something you need to ponder on in response or in the week. Do you value Christ? Do you treasure him? Because when we value Christ, we value the mission and we value the local church. We value each other. We began this series many weeks ago and Pastor John began with Acts chapter one, verse eight. And it said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, through Judea, in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he highlighted four words, power, spirit, witnesses, everywhere. Four simple words that have changed lives, that have changed the world for Jesus in countless times throughout history. Imagine what would happen if we took that seriously. Stand with me and we're going to pray. Oh, Father, I thank you so much for your word, and I thank you for the Neighborhood Church. I thank you that you are a just God, that you are merciful and loving and graceful and compassionate. And Lord, I pray that everyone listening, whether it's online or in this sanctuary, Father, that they get this hunger and thirst for your word. 
that they want to meditate on it on day and night. And I pray that they want to learn all of it, the good stuff, the hard stuff, that they want the truth. Lord, I pray for boldness in each of us, that by your spirit, we have the courage to speak into one another's lives, those who, who know you and those who don't know you. I pray, Lord, most of all, that they love you deeply, that they love you so much that it affects everything they touch, every person that they are around, that their value, that their treasure, that their worth is found in you and you alone. And Father, in placing this value on you, they will begin to value your mission and value your church. And I want that so desperately, Father. So just reveal to each person here today how to do that. And Father, if any of them are struggling, any of them are tired, any of them are weary, I'm just giving that to you right now and ask you to give them the wisdom that they need to walk through it, the boldness to maybe reach out and help and ask for help and for encouragement, Father. And for those of you that don't know Jesus or haven't invited him into your life yet, I ask that you pray this with me, after me, actually everybody, to pray after me. Jesus, I believe you, I believe in you. I believe that you came to earth and died for my sins. I believe that you rose from the dead. I thank you that I can have eternal life because of this sacrifice. Father, I admit I'm a sinner and I need you as my savior. Come into my life. Change me from the inside out. I trust you and I love you. Father, I thank you so much for tonight. Lead each of our next steps, Father, whatever that looks like today, whatever our next step is for each of us, just lead the way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.